let us continue to pray. That hymn was a prayer, and I think we, we should continue in prayer. Indeed, Father, we pray that revival would break forth here in the city of Guelph and around the world. For we look around us and we see the brokenness of the world in which we live. We see the many ways in which you are being dishonored by people's rebellion against you. And it's not as if we are entirely innocent. We must confess that we are often complicit in the many sins that go around us. We each in our own lives have been guilty of blatant disregard of your ways, of living as if you did not exist. And so, Father, indeed, we ask, search our hearts. Convict us of sin. And thank you that Christ has died and risen again so that we are cleansed and we may freely approach you with confidence, not in our merits, but on the basis of Christ's merits. And so we thank you. And as a church, we rejoice in you because as a people, we have seen your faithfulness this past fiscal year. And as we enter into our annual meeting and discuss the future, we thank you that we can discuss the future with hope, with confidence, because we, see, we have seen you at work in our midst. We have seen your provision. We have seen your grace lavished upon us. But we realize we are just getting started. And so, Father, as we look to the future and as we look at the challenges that lie ahead of our church to reach out into this neighborhood, into this city, to proclaim the hope that can only be found in Jesus Christ, we ask indeed that you would revive us, that you would strengthen us, that you would cause us all to look to Christ and Christ alone so that we may be able to proclaim him out of delight, out of hearts that have been humbled by your grace and that rejoice because we are ravished by your infinite love so that the people around us may see the love that has transformed us working out in our midst so that they may hear of that love and that they may be drawn to Christ, the lover of our souls. And so we ask as we come to your word that your spirit would guide and direct us and that you would cause your word to have its effect, that we would, as your people, humbly receive the implanted word so that it may transform us for our good and for your glory. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So let's turn to James chapter 4. 
it struck me as, um, as, I was, as we were in our small group, um, it seems as if I'm preparing us, it, it seems as if the book of James has been preparing us for our annual meeting. You know, James chapter three, taming the tongue. <laughs> then James chapter four, not fighting with one another. Um, I would, <laughs> I didn't plan it that way. And, you know, I, I didn't really need to plan along those lines because um, from what I've seen of our members' meetings, they've actually been very friendly and often funny. So I'm, I'm quite confident about the, the spirit, the atmosphere of our members' meeting. But I think James chapter, the, the book of James has been has been very helpful because it challenges us about the kind of culture we have here in the church. And another word for gospel culture that living faith is supposed to develop is a word called hilarity. And Marva Dawn uses this word in her book, The Hilarity of Community, she transliterates this word from Romans chapter 8, chapter 12, verse 8. It's, in your translations, it would be cheerfulness, but she transliterates the Greek word as hilarity in order to describe the gladness that arises from a deep sense of well-being founded in trusting the grace giver to work his gifts to us. That's really what should be driving us as a church, that deep gladness from, that comes from knowing God and trusting that he is at work. And then she goes on to say, the church has a wonderful message to proclaim. The hope of internal meaning, the love of persons in deep relationship because God loved us first the faith that we are accepted on the basis of the merits of someone perfect and not because we have successfully managed to be the most efficient. Everyone in the world is longing for the hilarity of that kind of hope, that fulfillment of being loved, that content of faith that will not change. The superficiality of many parish fellowships belies the biblical possibilities. Why do Christians have such difficulty in loving one another, in being glad to belong to one another, in experiencing the empowering hilarity that the grace of God and true community confer? That is a question that we ask, and if you haven't been asking it, that we ought to ask. And in this passage, James provides the answer. So let me read James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, very simply, James says that we are unable to reflect gospel-driven hilarity because we are driven by our self-centered desires. That's verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Each of us is determined to have our way, to be on top, to win the argument, right? And we seek to please ourselves, so we arrange life for our convenience and make our personal comfort our first priority. We rebel against correction, run from accountability, and we get mad when people disagree with us, so we start attacking them. And even when we're right, we still act out of selfish ambition rather than exercising the meekness that comes from godly wisdom that James talks about in chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. When we're in an argument, we want to prove I am right rather than seeking what is right for God's glory and for the good of others. That's why chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 12 is bracketed by discussions of ungodly speech and James warns us against fighting, quarreling, and murder. I don't think he is thinking about physical murder, but I think we all are familiar with Jesus' words telling us that to hate our brother is tantamount to committing murder in the eyes of God. Bottom line, be it at home, at work, at church, 
or in our friendships, we don't get along with others. We don't experience the hilarity of community because we are self-centered. We want to dominate. This is my struggle. And our self-centeredness, verse 2, expresses itself in prayerlessness. We are so intent on getting what we want and we rely on our efforts. So when others frustrate us, we pick fights. Verse 2, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. I mean, that's reality, isn't it? We want something so much, people are in our way. And you've got an immovable force, <laughs> an immovable object and an irresistible force coming together. And that's us. Grant Osborne points out, as we get so busy with life, we more and more turn to ourselves and leave God out of our, these daily situations. Then when crises arrive, we waste so much time worrying about what we're going to do, and only much later, if at all, do we think about seeking God's wisdom and guidance. Isn't that the case for all of us? And worse, James says, when we do pray, verse 3, we are motivated by self-gratification. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We're trying to use God to build our personal kingdom of self instead of giving ourselves to seeking his kingdom. No wonder God doesn't give us what we ask. Now, again, I'm not saying anything new, am I? Our pride and selfishness are so ingrained, they have become what um, Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Because everybody does it, even in church. But the wonderful thing about James is he will not let us off the hook. He will not let us hide behind the masks we wear. That's why in verse 4, he takes on the mantle of an Old Testament prophet and he calls us adulterers. The Greek word is fem feminine, adulteresses, because we are the church, the bride of Christ. That's why I had us read Hosea chapter 3. Hosea was married to Gomer. Gomer was an unfaithful wife. And she was serially unfaithful to Hosea. And James wants us to bring that, he's bringing that language of the Old Testament prophets to show that we, because we are proud and selfish, we have broken the bond of covenantal intimacy and faithfulness that is intrinsic to the new covenant. Pride and selfishness are not just bad sins. They are horrible. We commit adultery. Moreover, friendship in antiquity was usually taken far more seriously than in today's Western world as a lifelong pact between people with shared values and loyalties. That's what friendship was 
in the, ancient, in, in the Mediterranean first century. Friendship in James' day indicated identification to and relationship with something or someone. So to be friends with the world means to identify with its standards and priorities. We're not just talking about Facebook friends here or business acquaintances. In putting ourselves and our selfish interests first, we have become friends of the world. We have become enemies of God. And so God is rightly jealous for us. And we're not talking about the insecure jealousy of a selfish person. God's jealousy is a righteous jealousy that is rooted in his wise and loving commitment to seeking our greatest good. He loves us so much, he will tolerate no rivals because he alone can satisfy our deepest needs. And as I was just reading this, I was struck. When when James says, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Isn't it amazing that God loves you and me so much that he yearns jealously for us? Isn't it a tremendous truth that God desires us with all the passion of his holy, infinite being. Doesn't such love deserve our absolute allegiance? And so I hope we recognize that our self-centeredness, our pride is treachery against Jesus who loved us so much He gave himself for us. To be proud and self-centered is to spit in the face of Jesus and to trample on his cross. Now, I think you realize James isn't just telling us be nice. He is confronting us with the vileness of our self-centered pride so that we would repent of our disordered desires and experience the hope of the gospel. And that's why he goes on in verse 6. But he gives, oh, verse 7, but he gives more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, James is telling us that if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, No amount of trying can erase your pride and sinfulness. You need a new heart. And that can be only found in God who gives more grace. His grace confronts us with our sin. But it doesn't leave us in the muck of our sin because it's horrible to be faced with your sin. His grace enables us to humble ourselves under the Lordship of Christ, to run to the cross so that we obey Him 
so that we trust him, receive his forgiveness, and out of that grateful embrace of his forgiveness, re- receiving of his forgiveness, we obey him and not our desires. See, James has already pointed out that selfish ambition is reflective of demonic wisdom in chapter 3. And that's why he tells us to resist the devil. When we put ourselves first, we're really following Satan. James isn't telling us to pray against Satan, bind Satan, or rebuke Satan. He's telling us to embrace God's kingdom purposes as our own. That's why he says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We resist Satan by submitting to God. But it's more than willing ourselves to do what is right. I think we've all tried And we've all failed because we find that our desire to please ourselves is far too strong to overcome. And that's why in verse 8 to verse 10, James goes on and tells us, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. The only way for us to change is to come near to God. Because it is only as we draw near to God that we actually see our sin for the heinous evil that it is. Think of Isaiah. When he saw the glory of God, He cried out, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He saw his true need. As long as we're focused on comparing ourselves with others, and usually we find the worst others, we excuse our sin. We don't mourn. Well, at least I'm not as bad as him. But when we see the glory of God, all excuses go out the window. And you may be better than the worst neighbor in the world, but you still don't measure up to God. And so when James talks about cleansing hands and purifying hearts, he's calling us to repent, to seek the forgiveness of God and reorient ourselves totally to God. And here's the wonderful thing. The burning holiness of God doesn't just expose our sinfulness. Notice James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And as he draws near to us, his beauty and glory grips our hearts and frees us from our self-centeredness because we find him who is greater than our greatest desires so that we learn to desire him. See, living faith, faith that recognizes the beauty, the wonder, the majesty of this living God is completely devoted to God because he's forgiven us and given us the privilege of being his children. So we humble ourselves before him. And the amazing thing in verse 10 is that when we humble ourselves before God, He lifts us up. Notice verse 10. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Stop trying to lift yourself up. It's vain glory. God gives the true glory because He makes us like Jesus. And that's the wonder of what God is doing with us. But as the Puritan Thomas Watson said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so James moves on. He's already called us adulterers. Now he moves on to continue to confront us in two areas that reveal our arrogance. It's, it's as if James is reading our minds and says, and we're saying, so, I mean, okay, fine. I, I get what you're saying, James. But is it really that bad? So he, he got, now goes to specifics. And he confronts us in two areas that reveal our arrogance. He's calling us to live out the transforming grace of God, both in our speech and our planning. And James points out that when we slander others, when we speak against others, when we judge others, we are acting as if we were God. Verse 11 and verse 12. To speak evil of one another isn't just a failure to love. It is putting ourselves in the place of God. And follow his logic. To speak evil of your brother or sister is to speak evil against the law and judge the law. Verse 11. Why is that? Well, because to criticize, to slander, to pass judgment on another person is a deliberate violation of God's command to love our neighbor. And that's probably the command that James has in mind in light of his reference in verse 12 to judging our neighbor. When we willfully disobey God's command to love our neighbor, we are saying, I disagree. I don't have to love my neighbor. And so we're not just disagreeing. When we're speaking against our neighbor, we're actually not submitting to the law. We are passing judgment on the law. And James says, basically, you're usurping God's authority. That's why he says in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. And that's God. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And you notice how emphatic he is? But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And that's us. James is basically saying, who do you think you are <laughs> to be speaking against your brother or your sister? Now, does that mean that we don't confront others when they sin? Absolutely not. See, the judging that James is talking about here is criticism of others motivated by prideful contempt. I think we've all gotten, we've all known people and we think we're better than they are. So no matter what they do, they're wrong. No matter what they do, no matter what they say, it's wrong. It doesn't meet our standard. Because 
we think we're better, right? All of us have had our attitudes towards others so curdled. And so we speak, we criticize the person, the goal being to bring that person down and put ourselves on top. In contrast, godly rebuke is driven by love and humility. We confront our brother or sister because we are seeking his or her good. As Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, we are doing it in humility, knowing that we ourselves are susceptible to that same sin. And in godly rebuke, we are actually acting as agents of grace under God's authority. We are pointing our brother or sister to what is right so that they can be more like Jesus. The goal is repentance, not subjugation. We confront in submission to God and not in opposition to his purposes. We're not trying to expand our kingdom by bringing this person down with a mic drop. We're seeking his good, her good, so that Jesus might transform him or her. And, and we don't just confront, we actually come alongside. We want to work, walk with them so that they change. And then James moves on to the second scenario that highlights our need for God's grace. Verse 13 to verse 17. He says, we don't just act as if we're God when we speak against other people. We act as if we're God when we plan autonomously. See, many of us tend to live as if we control how things will turn out. And James talks to people in the congregation, uh, probably merchants, now listen, you say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. They've got everything figured out, haven't they? Where they'll do business, how long they'll stay in the place, the profit they'll make. They are so confident of success when they don't even know if they'll be alive the following day. That's verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that, hap that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And you know the worst part? Their plans revolved around their themselves. There was no place for God. You see that? Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Where's God? Well... He's nowhere. And James says that is arrogant and presumptuous. That's in verse 16. And I have to say, I'm guilty of that. I remember my senior year in university, I had my life all planned out. I graduate, teach at the university for a year or so, get accepted to a PhD program, in the US, and then after I get my PhD, I'll return to the university to teach and live happily ever after. That was my plan. I didn't care about God's plan. And I was living as if I was in control and my plans were completely, totally focused on myself. 
Praise God, he is a God of love and grace who loves us enough to rebuke our arrogance. I was so arrogant, my work habits were a reflection of my arrogance. And they caught up with me. So it took me an extra year to finish my undergrad thesis. So I couldn't get a TA position and I realized I'm not cut out for a PhD. (laughs) Some of you are, so good for you. (laughs) Now James isn't saying that we shouldn't plan. Wisdom actually demands that we do plan. But wise planning means means that we hold our plans loosely since we do not know the purposes of God. That's what he's saying here in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. We humbly plan submitting our lives, our purposes, our plans to God. And that's where the issue is, isn't it? We want to be in control. It's another expression of our desire to be as God. And that's why we don't want to take risks. And that's why we worry about the unknown. That's why we get frustrated and angry when things don't go as planned. That's why we stress over details and delays. If the Lord wills, should never be just a pious catchphrase. It must be a life-shaping acknowledgement that God is in control, not me. And frankly, that's a wonderful comfort since we really are incapable of guiding our lives very well on our own. Um, We're all a lot like one of my kids who shall remain nameless, we were at church once and one of the one of the young ladies gave her gave one of my kids her keys and you know what my dear son did he took the keys and ran straight for the nearest electrical outlet uh, Joel and I did not run faster than, and <laughs> we, we were able to get him before he got to the socket. But really, that's us, isn't it? <laughs> we just find a way to mess ourselves up. That's why it's so beautiful to live if the Lord wills. Because we are committing ourselves to giving up our plans to embrace the purposes of God. We are following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, Not my will, but thine be done. And let's all admit, this is tough. Because somewhere deep in our hearts, we think we know better than God. And there's a part of us that is determined to seek our good. Let's understand, we don't own ourselves. We belong to God. He has redeemed us for himself. 
And so to plan for our self-gratification is to embezzle the life that God gave us. So the challenge is to make God's plans our own. In the first place, God is infinitely wiser than we are and loves us more than we can ever imagine. And so we should submit to him because he knows what's best for us and he is determined to give us his best. And I look back on my broken plans and I just thank God that he didn't give me what I'd wanted. And that's not just in my career choice, it's, it's all over, but you know, the last thing I really wanted to do was be a pastor, and I told you, I ran away from that for 10 years. And yet, I can honestly say that I can stand here today grateful to God for the privilege of being your pastor. And <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> I would say, though, that I, I didn't even want to apply to Crestwick. You, you all know the story. <laughs> but that's the grace of God. It's when we submit to God that we experience and know his goodness. But look, I don't want you to base this simply on my experience. See, the ultimate expression of our sovereign God's reliability and trustworthiness is to be found in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm grateful that Jessica decided to introduce all my boast is in Jesus Jesus suffered the most horrible, shameful death. And yet he didn't deserve it. But look at what Acts 4 says. Whatever happened was what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Do you realize that Jesus willingly exercised his sovereign control so that he might suffer for you and for me. In his infinite matchless love, he died for rebels like you and me who would rather be God so that we would be reconciled to God. He paid the price for our arrogance and unbelief. And wonderfully, he rose again and gave us his spirit so that his spirit could transform us into his image, could unite our divided hearts and make us whole by teaching us to love God above all. And again, we know all this, right? And yet, and yet, and yet, we still try to be in control instead of submitting ourselves to God. And that's why James closes in verse 17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Thank you, James, for not letting us escape our guilt. But here's the good news. Our comfort is that God is greater than our sinfulness. His grace is more powerful than our depravity. Satan fools us into thinking we're hopeless. And that's why James 4, 6, and 7 are so important. But he gives us more grace 
That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Satan tries to make us think we're hopeless, but we resist Satan by trusting in the promises of God. I love these words from Paul Tripp. God provides grace for this struggle. God's grace aims for the rescue, transformation, and deliverance of your heart. God's grace works to free you from bondage to your own desires. God's grace battles for your thoughts and desires, even when you don't. God's grace is powerful and unrelenting. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. We can acknowledge our sins and face the shame because the death of Jesus has secured our pardon once and for all, even for our continuing selfishness. That's why we go back to God over and over and over so that we may receive his forgiveness. His resurrection has given us new life. And when we acknowledge our sin, that is the spirit at work to humble us by convicting us of sin and driving us back to Christ. He gives more grace. So let's draw near to him so that we may become a church that submits to God and speaks the truth in love out of a deepening intimacy with God and with each other. Let us humble ourselves before our sovereign Lord so that we may enjoy the beauty, the hilarity of community for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that even as you confront us with our sin, our quick temper that arises from our pride, from our desire to get our way, from our selfishness that desires comfort above you. Even as you confront us with our sin, you show us Christ. Oh Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to know that our sins are forgiven. We don't have to hide in the darkness. Instead, you tell us to draw near. And we realize that in drawing near to you, our sins are exposed even more. And we see even more the, the filth of our lives. But we thank you that you expose our vileness not to embarrass us, but so that we may know our need of you because Christ has already paid for those sins. And so you show us our sins so that we may understand how deeply you love us. Oh God, forgive us for our folly, for running away, for hiding our sin. Help us to come out into the light of day so that 
in confessing our sin, we may know the grace of your forgiveness. So that as Paul said, your love, we might know your love and be gripped by that same love. And in being gripped by that love, live no longer for ourselves, but for him that for us died and rose again. Oh Lord, may your gospel grip us so that it would change us and make us a people who radiate the same grace that we have experienced, who radiate the love that we increasingly know as we draw near to you day after day so that we may truly be a light in this dark and sinful world pointing people to Christ. Thank you that this is what you're doing in our midst and we ask that you'd help us all to submit to that work for our good, for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.